Good morning. Today we're getting into John chapter 6, and I'm especially mindful this morning that this is the text that divided the disciples uh, repeatedly in, in the Gospels when Jesus is teaching. The crowds will be confused or confounded one way or the other, but this is the text that truly um, is scandalous for even the core, uh, even, even among Jesus' disciples. And uh, it was kind of funny even this week, I decided to call this message Eat My Flesh because that is the text we're looking at. And it was so funny to me, just the level of response of just like, even in just saying that. And this is 20 centuries later for church people who are in a place where we practice coming to the table every Sunday. And the words still kind of have a bit of a shock to them. So if you can imagine what that's like in the first century. Um, I just want us to pray before we do dive in that text because I feel like today I'm, I'm really going to deep into some very mysterious things that I don't have the capacity to explain that I really don't think can be understood rationally but truly do require revelation. So with that in mind, would you pray with me? And God, we just ask that through the proclamation of your word, you would make the mysteries of God known to us, that you would reveal yourself, that you would reveal your heart, that you would reveal this text. We pray um, not so much for comprehension. We pray not so much for a natural kind of understanding, but we pray for an illumination of your word in the depths of us that brings life, that brings wholeness, that brings a deep knowing of you and makes the way for a deep knowing with one another. We pray, Lord, for that kind of transformative hearing that allows um, absurd things and things that we struggle with to, as we're immersed in the depths of those mysteries, that we would also be brought to life through them. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's go right to the text. John 6, begin with verse 56. Jesus says, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Let's stop right there just for a footnote. The, the, the Greek here leaves no room really for the idea that this is a spiritual kind of eating. Um, it's a very literal kind of eating. This is, there's a physicality to this text. So, because I know often we read something strange like that, we're immediately thinking, oh, it's a spiritual meal. That doesn't seem to be what Jesus is saying. He seems to refer here to an actual meal that you can taste, uh, actual bread that can be handled. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Keep in mind, by the way, this is to an audience of Jews for whom there is nothing more offensive, scandalous, or dirty than drinking blood. You go to great lengths to avoid making sure that you, you don't eat something that's been contaminated by blood. So for many, many reasons, this is problematic to the hearers. Let's go on. Jesus says, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this teaching is difficult, who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life, the flesh is useless. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. 
But among you there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe and who was the one that would betray him. And he said, for this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. I want to contend with you that Jesus is explicitly here talking about the practice of the Eucharist. Even though this is before his death and resurrection, um, so in so many ways these words are not yet intelligible to the disciples, I believe that Jesus is talking about this very real physical meal that will become the defining practice of the early church. Every time the early Christians gathered, they would come to the table. It's what Christians were slandered for. The fact that they used this language of eating flesh and drinking blood was precisely why Christians were so often criticized. They were, people thought they were cannibals. They'd say, these people get together, they eat flesh, they drink blood, they're part of some kind of weird new mystery cult. Like th this is the defining practice for the early Christians, this very physical, very tangible act of coming to the table and partaking of this meal. I'm convinced that this Eucharist that is offered to us is, and I know like preachers are prone to overstatement exaggeration, but I don't think this is overstatement. I don't mean it to be. This is what I really think. So watch this for like the biggest statement ever. The secrets of the universe are bound up in the Eucharist. How do you like that? Is that a big claim? Not just the secrets of God, not the secrets of the church, the secrets of the universe. Everything about who God is, what God is, what God's like, what creation is like, how creation works, it's all bound up at the table. All the mysteries are present in this one mysterious meal. It's why you can take it every week and it come to mean something different. It's why every time you take it, there, there's something to be illumined, something that there's so much present in it. I don't want to go into all this at length, but a lot of my journey to weekly practice of the table had to do with John Wesley. Um, I came kind of through the Pentecostal stream, tracing the lineage back through Wesley. Wesley commanded all of his preachers to serve the table weekly. He himself took communion every day because he felt like it was that necessary, the strength that comes from this meal. I believe the mysteries of the cosmos are bound up in the universe. And lest you don't believe my witness, I am appealing to one who is higher than I, J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> How many Lord of the Rings people do we have here? You know Lord of the Rings, you love Lord of the Rings. Surely you trust the witness of Tolkien, even if you can't receive me as a prophet, receive him. <laughs> and Tolkien says, this is in a letter to a friend, what is now my favorite quote. In the manuscript I just finished, I had to put it in the last minute because I think this is the best thing I've ever heard. Listen to this. Tolkien writes, out of the darkness of my life, so much frustrated, I put before you the one great thing to love on the earth. I mean, do you hear this? The one great thing to love on the earth. The blessed sacrament. There you will find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all your loves upon earth. That's the best thing I've ever heard. Romance, love, honor, fidelity, the, the, the true way of all your loves on the earth. That's beautiful. 
And I really believe that's, that's the Eucharist. All the mysteries are bound up in this. If, if we have any sense of what's really going on, not that we can understand it rationally, but there's something in this act of coming to the table. There's a lot I want to say about this, but I do kind of want to clarify this because I think it's not often said. When we come to the table of the Lord, this meal, where all the mysteries of God are present and made known to men and women, um, I find that this is, I think, the most misunderstood practice in the history of the church. In fact, Church tradition matters a great deal to me. I appeal to tradition. I think tradition matters. But I do think on this point, said with due humility, Christian tradition has got this wrong more than we've got it right historically. The table of the Lord, this table where the body and blood of Jesus is made present to us, where we have the opportunity to eat his flesh and drink his blood through this very physical act, is a table that is open to all people. I can't stress this enough. All people. Whoever you're thinking about right now that you think it's not open to them, those people. The table of God is an open table that is made available to whosoever will. Anyone who says yes to God is eligible to come to this table. And because I'm really pulling out the big guns on the quotes today, Carl Bart said, heavy hitting right here, y'all. Bart said, holy communion is offered to all as surely as the living Jesus Christ is for all. As surely as all of us are not divided in him, but belong together as brothers and sisters. All of us poor sinners, all of us rich through his mercy. Amen. I'll add my own amen, Carl Bart, because that's so right. The holy communion is offered to all. And yet somehow often we've had this understanding that the Eucharist is for especially holy people. So we put guardrails around it, all kinds of rules about who can come and who can't come, who's holy, who's unholy, who's worthy, who's unworthy. A lot of this, I think, stems from a certain interpretation of a text of Paul's in Corinthians. I don't have time to go into this at length, but I'll say a bit about it, where Paul talks about receiving the body and blood of Jesus in an unworthy manner. Let's be clear about what that's saying and what it's not saying. Paul is not saying that people who come to the table of the Lord need to be morally pure or righteous. I can whittle that down with a simple question. Who do you think is morally righteous enough to deserve the body and blood of Jesus? How many times do you have to wash your hands to, to be clean enough to partake of the body of God? No one's that holy. No one's that righteous. No one deserves this. Anyone who comes to this table, anyone who's invited to this table, it is only the mercy of God. It is only the grace of God that makes this possible. No one is good enough for that. The idea is not at all that only especially holy people will come. The problem, Paul says, is that people in the church at that time are coming to the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner. It's not who's coming, but how they're coming. And what's going on is that the table practice of the church was beginning to mirror the table practice of the world, where the wealthy and the elite would eat and gorge themselves on the bread and the wine, have as much as they want, and then the outcasts and the marginalized got the table scraps when it was over. And Paul says in doing this, you have not rightly discerned the body of Christ, and for this, some are sick and dying among you. The hilarious twist on this is that in the practice of guarding the table and saying this table is only for the especially holy, this table is only for uh, the, the especially righteous, this table is only for those that we deem to be appropriate, or it's only for our tribe or our tradition, 
That's how you come dangerously close to the practice that Paul describes in Corinthians. Not by inviting unholy people to come. Have you ever noticed in the Gospels just how frequently, how often does it come up that Jesus is criticized for who he eats and drinks with? There's a reason that this comes up repeatedly. It's the central scandal of Jesus' own life and ministry, is that he eats and drinks with the wrong people, with tax collectors and sinners. Why is that a problem? Because if Jesus is a holy person, he can't be eyeball to eyeball across the table with unholy people. That dignifies them. In a culture especially where according to Levitical law, to be around that which is unholy, to touch that which is unholy will make you defiled, Well, you must be defiled because you associate with defiled people and common things. That's the grand inversion. That's the reversal of the ministry of Jesus. Is that now instead of holy things or holy people touching that which is profane and becoming profane or common, Jesus touches those that are profane and makes them holy. So instead of this sense of be careful not to touch something unholy, you might become unholy. Watch out, unholy people and unholy things. I will get my holiness on to you. You hear what I'm saying? The germs are reversed here. Jesus imparts wholeness, and I don't, I'm feeling so fired up about this right now, I don't even know where that's coming from. Jesus imparts wholeness in life. You know what we say about this? We call it the body and blood of Jesus, which is meant to be connected, surprisingly, to the body and blood of Jesus <laughs> as the incarnate Son of God. It works the same way now that it did then. It wasn't that in the first century when people touched the body and blood of Jesus that were profane or common, that God sanctified, God consecrated, God made them holy, and now it doesn't work anymore. (laughs) Now you have to be careful because you might contaminate the bread and wine. God is not squeamish about your dirty hands. This meal is food for the journey If you are struggling with sin or addiction, there I have no better recommendation for you in all the world than that you come and partake of this meal because this is what gives you strength. It is not those who are sick that are in need of a doctor. It's ludicrous, this notion that you need to be well to receive the medicine. I wish this was North Carolina and somebody would like help me preach or something. (laughs) You don't, it's not for the whole This is the meal where the brokenness of Christ transforms our brokenness and makes us whole. This is what we come for. But but here's the thing that's so crucial, and this is what, for me, this whole message is about today. So it's not for the especially holy people. It's not for the super righteous. It's not for the morally pure. But, and I can't state this strongly enough, this, it, it does matter how you approach it. How you approach the meal is everything. You don't have to be an especially holy person. You do need to be a humble person. You need to be a hungry person. Anyone who comes to the table that is in any way saying yes to God, they are welcome. On the other hand, flip that around, and someone who's been minding all their manners and keeping all the rules and doing everything they can to be righteous, spotless, clean, whatever, if they come to the table without humility, if you come to the table without a heart that's bowing before God, if you come in a way that's not saying yes to Jesus, then the way you approach the table is very wrong indeed. God asks for nothing of those who come to the table than they come hungry and they come humble. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. If your coming to the table is a way of saying yes to Jesus and you come with humility and hunger, it, it is the right way to come. And God will meet you here. 
God will meet you at this table. So I want to tell you a story that is literally my favorite story, favorite story, so much so that I closed my THM thesis at Duke with this story. I love it. I can't get enough of it because like in any story where God is acting in a profound way, it messes with people. It messes with categories, which is what always happens when God works. He brings disruption. Footnote, between services, a young man asked me a great question. He was like, talking about the, the, the distance between mystery and knowing. And he's like, in, the, in a wonderful way, he asked me, don't you think that Scripture is here to, to make us certain, you know, and to give us kind of certainty? And I was like, I think Scripture works opposite of that. I think we are too certain about all the wrong things, and that Scripture troubles us and bewilders us in a way that makes trust possible and necessary. The Bible is not here to clarify. The Bible is here to confuse. God bless you, sanctuary. That is free of charge. So that then you have to trust the Spirit to be illuminated. That's what I have to say to you about Scripture. Where did that even come from? I'm not sure, except that this story is bewildering, and it messes things up, and for that, I love it. I had a friend named J.C. Accidentally, in the last service, called him Jay-Z, which would be awesome if I knew Jay-Z. I'm not friends with Jay-Z, though I think he would like me a great deal. I do have hip-hop sensitivities. My friend J.C. grew up in Honduras, and when he was 12, got involved with a violent street gang, okay? And they did terrible things. So when he was 14, him and his friends decided, just for meanness, that Little Assemblies of God Church in the neighborhood, and they decided they were going to burn it down with people inside of it during a prayer meeting. So him and his buddies like put a chain lock on the door on the outside while people were in praying. They poured a trench of gasoline all the way around the building, and then much to their shock and horror, they tried to light matches. They all had lighters. They could not light the gasoline on fire. Now, this is a true story. They could not get gas to burn. Ultimately, freaked them out, and they ran off. So within the few months after that, the lady who was a woman who was a youth pastor at this church began reaching out to my friend JC and was really, and now because of that experience, it was so strange. He was kind of open in a different way and didn't know what was going on. Finally, she convinced him to go on a youth retreat. And I love this story so much. He goes on this retreat not knowing that um, everybody who goes on this retreat, because these are Pentecostals in Honduras and they're serious about it, there's an enforced fast. Everybody is fasting on this thing. And he doesn't know that. So, of course, he's miserable. He's hating everything that's going on. Uh, the first night he was there, the guy from the rival gang that he had been feuding with, like his kind of their top on their hit list, gave his testimony about he had given his life to Christ, which, by the way, this is fun. He was the pastor's son and had just come to faith in Jesus, and he's telling this story. All, these, all kinds of strange and mysterious things about time for that, but, but the best part, the punchline. Sunday morning, he's in the service, and they have communion. They come to the Lord's table. And they're very strict within that church that only people who are baptized members of the church are allowed to come to the communion table. And J.C. said he can't explain it. He had kept everything at a distance all weekend. He wasn't really paying attention. He was kind of checked out. But he said when people came to the Lord's table, that in him he just felt this hunger for God, just a thirst for God. And he was heartbroken that he wasn't allowed to come to the table. He said it was just heartbreak. He just so wanted to be able to partake of those elements, but he wasn't allowed. So everybody gets the bread. They pass it around. They've all got a little piece of bread, and everybody has the little individual cups of juice. And while everybody else is taking the bread, just kind of intuitively, because he wanted it, he mimed eating bread while everybody else was eating bread, put an imaginary piece of bread to his lips. Then it came time to take the cup. And J.C. takes an imaginary cup and pours it to his lips. 
Now, this is where it gets super Pentecostal, charismatic, mystic, weird. And I think there's so many things in this sermon that could be objectionable for so many reasons. This is how I love preaching. JC said, 45 minutes later, he woke up in the middle of the floor speaking in tongues. People were laying hands on him and praying for him. And he doesn't know what happened. But somehow, when he took the imaginary cup, something in him changed. Now, like in my tradition growing up in that kind of church culture, we like, and everybody's got an order, right? It's not just, you know, Catholics and Episcopalians or whatever. Pentecostals have their own order for how things are done. And we would have an altar call to come and get saved. And then in my church, we had altar calls to come down and get sanctified. And after you got sanctified, then you could come down to an altar invitation the next week to get filled with the Spirit, in which case you would speak in tongues. So what do you do like in this story? Was he saved? Was he sanctified? Was he filled with the Holy Spirit? Yes, all of those things. It all happened. And what makes it even weirder, keep in mind, now this is after I'm telling you about the physicality of eating and drinking, and I believe in all that, and I believe that something happens like through the elements and all that. Doesn't it make it all the odder, though, that he doesn't take a real communion? I mean, it's an imaginary cup. So what do you even do with that? What real presence doctrine makes sense of that? An imaginary cup. But to me, what it speaks to so profoundly is this. We can't just have this understanding that this is the magic meal. If we can just force people to open their lips and we can just get the elements in, God gets into them. Clearly, the crucial thing is how we approach the table of God. So much so that in J.C.'s case, even when there were no elements, there is this mystical encounter of God's presence. I believe that how you approach the table is everything. Don't have to be especially righteous. Don't have to be especially consecrated. But you consecrate the moment. There's a reverence to the moment. There is a humility. There is a hunger. How we come to the table changes everything. If we come to the table with the sense that this is some kind of a, of a, of a routine thing, that you just do, if there's no sense of kind of the otherness of this, it is very possible to come to the table in that manner and it not mean anything to you. But if we do come hungry and humble, if we do come in such a way that sets this time apart, and I really believe this, not to be overly spooky, but I'm just convinced that like, I really believe that healing can occur in receiving this meal. I believe that. I believe that when we take the cup, I believe that there is physical healing available in this meal. I don't understand the mystery of who gets healed and who doesn't. I just I, I believe that God meets people in this way. I do believe that for people who are struggling with addiction, that people are struggling with anger, that people are struggling with anything, struggling with life, there is strength imparted to them through this meal. It is food for the journey. This is a way of meeting with God and encountering God. But whether or not we approach the table with expectation whether or not we approach the table uh, with hearts that are, that are humble and ready makes all the difference in the world. Because ultimately, and I, I really feel like I need to say this, that it's always about not just how we approach the table. The reason that we come to the table to begin with, the reason that it's important that we approach the table in the right way is because how we approach this table informs how we approach all tables, it informs how we approach all people. It informs how we approach life. This is why I think it's so important that in consecrating this meal, as we should do, that we don't think of it too much as the magic meal, this one-off thing or whatever. Like This is supposed to shape how we live. The, the, 
I personally, and I'm, this is gonna come out funny, I don't mean for it to, but it just does. I encounter God all the time through food. I really do. Like, and I am hungry right now. This is the third time I've preached this sermon. I get, I get weepy sometimes over a meal. I get very emotional. It, I can even be eating a salad sometimes that, and all of its deliciousness of these created green things. And I'll just think about, I'm not kidding, the goodness of God, the provision of God, and like, oh, and be like so moved by this, you know? All meals are an opportunity to commune with God and an opportunity to commune with others. We learn that at the table. Because we consecrate this moment as holy, it teaches us how to make all meals holy. It teaches us how to reverence the people that prepare meals for us. Oh my goodness, all kinds of meals. I know like, I'm all for being healthy, it's great. I try to do that in spurts, in ways. But I'm just like, I am never permanently giving up carbs and sugars. I know that a lot of you have like your data. King James Version of the Bible did not tell you to do that. And if it's good enough for Paul and Silas, it's good enough for me. You, sorry. The, like, I just like, it might prolong my life to cut off certain foods forever, but what kind of life would it be? You hear what I'm saying? Like, what, what is the reason for my existence if I don't have these things? God meets me. Jesus is the bread of life. What does that tell you about carbs? This is very like, they have their place, they have their role. All meals are holy. It's always an opportunity for consecrated space. But beyond that, and I really believe this, because we come to recognize the presence and power of God through this absurd meal. And let me stress that one more time. It's an absurd meal. I haven't washed my hands and someone is going to eat this piece of bread in a couple moments. The, it is ridiculous to think that through taking a little wafer like this and dipping into some juice, that somehow God shows that. That is a silly, silly thing. It's absurd. It doesn't accomplish anything pragmatically. You know, if church is really is, if we're supposed to be entertaining you constantly, no entertainment value in the Eucharist. We are missing a great opportunity to amuse the people. No pragmatic value whatsoever. But if you come to really believe in something as absurd as the idea that God somehow shows up through an act like this, that's what prepares you then for the absurdity that God can show up and work in all kinds of absurd, small things in your life. It awakens our senses to all that which is holy. So that what happens through the consecration of this meal is that now our senses are enlivened to look for the holiness and sacredness and beauty of God in the creation and in the people all around us. That's the point. Not the once a week magic meal. But this informs and approaches how we live all of our lives. Do you know how I know that black lives matter? Because the Eucharist teaches me that. The Eucharist teaches me the inherent dignity of my brothers and sisters. The Eucharist teaches me the essential holiness of all created things. The Eucharist teaches me that I'm not better than anybody else. The Eucharist teaches me that I'm dependent and needy on the presence of God every day, every moment of my life. The Eucharist doesn't just, this isn't just a moment to just remember what Jesus did in history or whatever. The Eucharist teaches me how to live my day-to-day, week-to-week life. The Eucharist teaches me that my brokenness doesn't disqualify me, but rather God uses my brokenness to bring wholeness to others. The Eucharist teaches me that I'm supposed to be distributed and that when I'm poured out and broken is when I'm actually the most useful. The table tells me that. 
the table tells me everything I need to know. And I find often when we're in a place where we feel like we need some kind of an answer, we come to God, explain this to me. I don't know why this is going down like this. I don't know what this means. We come looking for answers. God offers us the Eucharist. We come looking for a reason. We come looking for a rationality. God offers us the meal. The answers are never going to be intellectual answers that we can grasp or comprehend. But in tasting and touching the goodness of God, that's what brings the mysteries of God to life. Stand with me, please, or I'll keep doing this forever. Because I'm a little wound up, can you tell? My specific burden for Sanctuary Church, and I don't claim to be this big prayer warrior, but um, this has been heavy on my heart. As I prayed and thought about my own teaching here, um, which I'll be doing a lot of in these coming months, and just trying to lean into that, and I really felt like the Lord gave me this. Sanctuary is a community where uh, the leadership here has been so wise in, in making this practice so central in recent years. Uh, you didn't always have the, the altar this way raised with a table in the middle. I mean, the room itself, when you walk in, you know what the worship experience here is oriented around. That form is down. And, and, and I really, just as I prayed about this, I've really had this sense over and over again that the question that God wants to raise to me, to us as a community, that we're really supposed to be wrestling with in this season is, simple as this is, what does this mean? What does this mean? We spend all this time, we've got this huge chunk of real estate every week set aside for this practice. What does it mean? What does it mean for us to be a Eucharistic people? What does it look like as individuals and as a community for us to be broken alongside the body of Jesus and us to be poured out alongside the blood of Jesus? What does it mean? Nothing new, no new doctrine, no new revelation. We don't need that. I believe we need a deeper revelation of how God works through this meal that will teach us how God works through every area of our lives. So with that in mind, we are going to come to the table. And I want us to do a prayer of confession together right now, just as a way of clearing space of anything that would inhibit us, anything that might restrain us. This is a, a beautiful confession of the church, if you join me in this. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. Let me pray with you. God, I just, not on my behalf, but you, Lord Jesus, speak your forgiveness over your sons and daughters. And I proclaim that in the name of the Lord. Sons and daughters, you are forgiven. Receive your forgiveness. Receive your wholeness. Receive the fullness of life with God. And I ask you, Lord, now that as we prepare to come to this table, I pray that anyone who's far from you, anyone who feels distant from their presence, from your presence, let them be, draw, let them be brought close now by the blood of Christ. Draw them Wherever anybody is in their journey, let this be a moment where they invite you right in the middle of it, God. I pray that for those who are struggling, I pray that for those who are confused, that this moment, this meal would bring clarity. I pray for those who are uneasy, for those whose nerves are jangled and rattled, that this meal would bring peace, the peace of God in the midst of that confusion. I pray that for those who are in need of physical healing, it is through your stripes, Jesus, that we are healed. And I pray for the healing power of God 
to be released to us through these elements, then this simple act of coming to you with faith and expectation, with hearts that are humble and hungry, that you would meet with us, that you would transform us, that you would prepare us to look for you everywhere we go this week, that you would prepare us for the meeting with you that goes far beyond this particular space and time. Let us experience you now. Let us meet with you now through the eating of your flesh, the drinking of your blood, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Invitation I did with you last week that I love so dearly. This is the table not of the church, but of the Lord. It's made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you and it's his will that those who want him should meet him here. Greet our service. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.